You're listening to another New Hope Chapel, New Hope podcast. Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Steve Coleman, an elder and member of our teaching team, as he continues our series on Hosea called Redeeming Love. Uh, when I was a kid, I, uh, I was raised with one brother. He's about two years younger than I am. And um, we didn't have anything in common, uh, the two of us. I don't know, if, just the one brother. I don't know how true that is for any of the others. That, uh, so I didn't really have a, a pal, because he was just so different than I was. I was, I was terribly interested in what everybody else thought. I found out who the cool kids were in school, and I wanted to impress them and be one of them. I tried too hard, but I wanted to be one of them very badly, and my brother lived to please my parents, which meant that he didn't care what any of the other kids thought, and he did everything that he could in order to please them. Uh, if they had asked him to go to school in spats and a straw hat, he would have done it. Uh, I, on the other hand, wanted to dress like the Beatles. I wanted to look like the Dave Clark Five. My mother worked at a junior high school. She worked at George Fox. And she would come home pretty frequently and say, let me tell you what's in style and forget it. So, there was every, so I would find out more earlier than anybody else in my school was in style and then be denied it. This happened all the time. Um, we would go to Sunday school. We had the same, op- same thing towards Sunday school. Sunday school, to me, was robbery. They were stealing a day from me. This day belonged to me. They only gave me two. One of them was gone. I had to forfeit it in order to go to Sunday school. Mark would go to school in the back seat of the, of the car singing hymns. Um, he was the kind of kid that the, uh, the, you know, he, the, the, the teachers and the Sunday school teachers would send notes home saying, um, I wish my kid was like him. And my parents would say, you know, why, we, why don't we get any messages like that from your t- teachers? Why indeed? Um, I think the fact, it might have been, I think, first of all, that Mark's attitude towards Sunday school, but also the fact that he lived for my parents. It might have made him a little, a little easier for him to give his life to Jesus, to live for somebody else, to live for one person, to, to, to please that person, to put that above everything else, to live for him alone, and to not concern himself so much with what other people thought. Uh, this is a sort of also uh, plays into what the prophets are like, Mark could be like that. Mark was the kind of person who also would come up to you while you were doing something, and he would say, you know Jesus doesn't like that. Um, this is exactly what I wanted to hear when I was you know, starting to experiment with bad language and you know, the other kind of stuff that kids, that kids try to do in order to be different from their parents. I wanted to be as different from my parents as possible, uh, and Mark didn't. The prophets really were like that. They were not popular. Um, when you start talking about prophecy in the Bible, you're talking about people that we respect, but the people who listened to them didn't have any use for them. The people who listened to them, who had to put up with them, hated them. Uh, it was a very bad life to be a prophet, unless, of course, you got your reward and your meaning from what God thought of you. In the past few weeks, we've been listening about Hosea. We've had a number of different um, uh, sermons about it, and they all remind us that Hosea is known for the symbolic actions that he took, that he had to marry an adulterous woman, that he named his children to make a point, that the things that he did with his life were meant to illustrate to the people around him that, uh, in fact, God was trying to reach them with a particular message. His whole life was organized about this. One of the things to keep in mind is that while Hosea is known for this, uh, there's no mention of his wife, no mention of any of the rest after like chapter 4. 
the whole rest of the book, chapter, oh, through, through the 11th chapter, while he's known for this, it's a part of the book. But the rest of the book is the message that he brings and what he wants the people to understand coming from God as a prophet speaking his word. Now, Hosea was a guy who just lived in the neighborhood. You could have seen him down at the Walmart uh, with, his, with his family. He just, he just blended right in. When Hosea was chosen as a prophet, it's not like you could look at him and say, that man's going to be a prophet. I know when God is ready, he's going to call him a prophet. Like a lot of prophets, we, you know, the likelihood is he was just going about his life when he got the call, and his life was going to be obviously very different from then on in. So the continuing theme that we're hearing in the book of Hosea is that Israel has strayed from God. Their first love, the God who provided everything for them, Israel has strayed from them, has no more use for them. There is no sign of contrition in the nation. Now, there were obviously individuals in there. Uh, the Lord always kept a faithful remnant in every population that uh, stays faithful to him, and as they said later on in the Bible, never bent the knee. But the nation as a whole showed no signs of contrition, and the time came for punishment. Now, the word punishment is something that oftentimes we don't like to use, and we use discipline, or we use correction. Uh, Hosea doesn't back away from it, the time, and God doesn't back away from it in the book. The time was for punishment. This sin was not the kind of sin. It's like sin has become something oftentimes that unless it's bad enough, we sort of wink at it. We, um, we put up with it. We don't understand what the big deal is. We don't see that anybody's hurt. A lot of sins seem to be what we call victimless crimes. Um, God doesn't see sin that way, and in this case, the time came for punishment. How God saw all this is uh, spelled out in uh, the first parts of chapter 11 in Hosea. When Israel was a child, when he was first starting out, when he was young, when he was first starting to walk, when he was first finding his feet, I loved him. And I was the one who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is a word that is being used for Israel in the book of Hosea. I reached out to him and I fed him. I called him and they left me. And they burned offerings to the idols. Now how Israel saw it was differently. Makes sense. We so rarely see things exactly the way God sees them. We have our own perspective and our own wants and our own desires, our own priorities. To Israel, things looked okay. Why would this time stand out among any other time when God would get mad? Everything seemed to be all right. It was the land of milk and honey. They were worshiping other gods, and they were worshiping other gods for a reason. The more gods you worship, the more chance it is that you were touching all the bases. Everything that you were doing in life, there was perhaps another god out there who would be mad at you, and if you worshiped all of them, you could be sure that you didn't offend any of them. They didn't really have the attitude anymore that there was one god to please, the rest of them were false. They didn't see it that way, so they wanted to make sure they played the odds. They were not even aware anymore that he had restored them to health. So there's a disconnect. We are judging by human standards. We can't really avoid that, being human. And we look at the standards around us, and they appeal to us. And after a while, they become ours. And so we settle for things that are less than the kind of things that God promises us doesn't seem like settling, because when we achieve these things, life seems to be a lot sweeter. 
Life seems better when we have these things. Life seems better when we have creature comforts. There's a word we call them comforts. They are comfortable. It's nice to sleep in a warm house in a clean bed. It's nice not to have to worry about who's going to come to your door and take away members of your family. It's nice to know that if you decide one night, I want to go to a really nice restaurant, I can. I don't have to, like, uh, I don't have to look in the seat cushions of the sofa to find out if there's any extra change so I can go to McDonald's. I can go to a really nice place. I, I was doing that for a while. Oh, that's, a tr- that's, that's really true. Oh, great, we can, we can go to Rita's. And a lack of conflict. Things look okay to me. This is going to start to sound, or should start to sound, familiar. To certain people in our culture, which is to say, says me, the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, the world is starting to look like a very threatening, lost place. And the people around us seem to think things are okay. We're in pretty good shape. When prophets show up, all they do is throw cold water on our parade. Prophets are a buzzkill. Um... When the, when the prophet begins to speak, when a prophet begins to remind us of how wrong we are, when a prophet begins to point out our mistakes, when a prophet begins to really irritate us by, th- by saying all the things we wish we, um, were not true about us or we wish other people didn't know about or we would like to ignore or just pretend we're, we're not there, we don't care for it. When they point out our mistakes, you know, we obviously, we might not even be willing to think of them ourselves. What's even worse, I think, is when they start to say things are wrong, that we have stopped thinking are wrong. Those are the people who give us the most trouble as prophets. Those are the people that we think really might even be off base. We have come to be accepting of things which we know in the Bible are, are not for us. So the message then and now how are God's people living? The thing about Hosea, we remember, is the message was to God's people. There's a tendency nowadays to think, and it's hard to even say this, there's a, there's a tendency now to think that the message is for everybody. It goes out to all 7 billion people. We are free to hear it, but God's message is obviously for God's people. That's who should be listening. That's who should be attuned. That's who should be uh, discerning things spiritually. These things are spiritually discerned. When God speaks, when he speaks to his people, we are all free to come to, the, to, to respond to the invitation. But his message, obviously, is for his people. One of the things to remember is, in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians, we are reminded, there is a Lord of this world. And who is that? Who is the Lord of this world? Satan. This becomes a recurring theme for us a lot of times. It seems like we're talking about the same things over and over again, but there basically is one overarching theme, which is that God is sovereign, and a lot of people don't think so, but he remains sovereign nevertheless. Choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus tells us you are either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. You can't dip in and out. Um, In our culture, this doesn't go over. We like to be flexible. We like to, have, we like to come up with our own smorgasbord. We like to design for ourselves, pick and choose, the elements of faith that appeal to us. And just trying hard and being sincere and having good intentions should count for something. 
I don't know that they count for nothing, but they don't get us to the foot of the cross because we're still trying other things. We're still considering other things. We're still designing for ourselves who we think or want God to be rather than letting God describe for us who he is. Even now in 2014, when it seems like the rules have all changed, when it seems like the culture is so different that God doesn't really apply anymore and so has to be adapted to the culture. That's not how it, that's not how it works, and that's not God, what God offers to us. He wants to know how we're living. What are we thinking? Where's our heart? And where does God fit in? That statement should be sort of alarming to a Christian. God doesn't fit in. Do you understand? Right? It's not us who are the bosses that we look around, where, where can I put God? What, what spot in my heart do I need him to fill? Well, that might be true. But in essence, what it amounts to is where do we fit in with God? God is in charge. God was here before we were, remember? Well, no, not you don't remember, but you remember that that's true. Um, God was here before us. God got along just fine for some timeless amount of time without us and out of love created us. To love him, to be loved. One of the greatest gifts, in addition to life, is the fact that we know love. We're allowed to experience love. We're allowed to have it come to us. We're allowed to to share it with other people. It matters and it's significant that so much of Hollywood, so much of literature is based on love. How many love stories are there? All the the love that we're looking for. Um, Love is very, very important to us and God offers it to us. technology, a moving part. I should have known. (laughs) That's all it takes for me to mess it up. With the Lord on top, with the Lord in charge, with the Lord being sovereign, the question becomes one of how do we fit in? How can we fit in? And the fact that the Lord makes a way for us to fit in. What displeases God? Hosea is talking, or God is talking through Hosea to a lot of people who are displeasing God and probably don't really know it and don't understand what all the fuss is about. They are worshiping God, although they are also worshiping Baal and Asherah and Molech and a whole bunch of other gods that uh, happen to be the uh, God du jour. And sin is what it is. Now, in your workplace Friday or Thursday or the day before that, Did any of you hear the word sin all day long? At work, on the radio, on the way home, on TV at night, the shows you were watching, did the word sin come up? How often is the word sin used anymore? How central is sin to our culture? Um, When I hear the word sin, it's, it's funny. We all have these little ideas and thoughts that pop into our head unbidden. Uh, When I was not a believer, one of the um, artists that I really, I still really like him, but now I feel guilty about it, was uh, Frank Zappa. And uh, Frank Zappa made a a movie called uh, 200 Motels, which uh, which I now find is practically unwatchable. But at the time, it it was declared to be cool, and so while I didn't really like it then either, I uh, thought, well, you're supposed to like this. 
But there was a, a little part in the middle where he was talking to somebody who was um, going through some kind of a spiritual crisis. And the whole idea was that what he was doing was sinning. And it was said with a tone of voice that obviously was mocking and obviously meant to say that the only thing that is stopping you from having a good time, the only thing that is keeping you from fulfilling the destiny that's right in front of you is that somebody is labeling what you are doing sin. And if you didn't hear that word, you would be free to go. You could do whatever you wanted. You could proceed and enjoy yourself if, after all, isn't that why we're here anyway? Um, When I was a lukewarm Christian, I can remember um, thinking that I was doing something bad, but I was happy. And after all, that should make God happy. Isn't, Isn't that important to God? I'm happy. That's what God wants for me. Therefore, God has no complaint with the way that I go about getting it. I did that a lot. Five dollars at a time. Apostasy. Turning away from God and looking for something else. Anything else. It's easy for us to look in the Bible and we see these, these idols have names. And so we say, well, we don't do that. I don't know from Baal, I don't know Asherah, I don't know any of those people. I don't have any idols. An idol or apostasy is when anything takes precedence over God, period. doesn't have to be a God, doesn't have to have a name, doesn't have to be an image, doesn't have to be a picture that you look at its face and know who it is. But when you turn from God and put anything else first, it's apostasy. Isn't this a buzzkill? I, I have to tell you, There is nothing more gratifying than standing in front of a bunch of people that you love and having them laugh and enjoy the the message and just feel connected with you. There's nothing quite like it. And as I was putting this sermon together, I thought, I can't can't wring many laughs out of this. I can't come up with many funny stories. I can't come up with many anecdotes. They're just not presenting themselves this way. Sin... And the prophets who pointed out to us, it's a buzzkill. But oughtn't it be exciting? We who love God, who think that we've gone off of the path, who think that we're beginning to stray, who think that we've displeased him, isn't it exciting to have that revealed to us so that we can correct it? Isn't it exciting to come to us so that we can say to, our, to, uh, to ourselves and to God, I see, I see where I'm going wrong. I see that I, I don't want to persist in this. I don't want to continue like this way. I don't want my life to be like this forever. I want to get back on the right path as soon as possible. It should be exciting, but there's something about having your mistakes pointed out or the consequences of persisting in your mistakes that just are hard to take sometimes. Disobedience. And what happens to us is there is sinful behavior, which over time we have come to believe and accept I just don't see where the harm is in this. It's not our decision to make. Well, it's our decision to make, but there are consequences for making the wrong one. Part of our culture embraces sin. Embraces it. And the rest of the culture gets used to it. Sylvester Stallone gave a commencement speech to the University of Virginia a number of years ago in which he told them, go back to your rooms 
and start fudging and lying on your resume or you'll never get a job. University of Virginia, which I think is still a pretty prestigious school. So everybody does it, everybody lies, everybody tells, you know, tells a story. Remember the thing from the movie Wall Street, greed is good. Um, there are people who swallowed that. The thought is, they, I think there are still people who thought Wall Street was a documentary, that this was something that tells the truth about how people are and how they should be behaving, and that um, if you are not greedy, you're going to miss the boat. Somebody else is going to get rich. You're going to be left behind. Uh, they're going to be eating your lunch. So the problem, as much of a problem as that is, the church has become a part of the culture. The church is not supposed to be so cozy with the culture. Is that not true? We're not supposed to be like they are. We're called apart from them. We are set apart from them. We operate under different rules. We have a different Lord. The Lord of this world is not the Lord we follow. It's not the Lord that went to the cross, and it's not the Lord who rules over us, and it's not the Lord who's going to judge us someday. But when the church becomes part of the culture, and we begin to think the way the culture does, the church is in real trouble. The church, the church also gets used to it. Think about, you know, in your own lives, in our own lives, um, if there is sort of a persistent sin that you have not been able to shake and you've made peace with, this is just the way I am. I was made this way. God understands because he made me this way, which is not the same thing as saying, I'm in a battle against these impulses, against these desires, against this selfishness. It's a buzzkill. We get used to it. The church and society. The church is called out of Egypt. Just like Hosea was talking to those folks and God was talking through Hosea, I called you out of Egypt. You were in the place where you didn't belong. You were in a place that was not your home. I called you away from that to abide by my rules, to follow my commandments in covenant, which if you did, certain things God would do for us. God's provision, God's protection would be for us. The people of Hosea had forgotten that, and even being reminded, it didn't seem to be enough to cause them to to all of a sudden straighten up and fly right. The church is the same thing as Israel. We are called apart, set apart, identified by name as the people of God, The main difference nowadays is it's not geographic. Once it was thrown open uh, in the um, book of Acts, it's thrown open, we could live anywhere. So now we're scattered amongst people. Rather than living as a unit in one place where we all abide by the same rules, we're scattered through a bunch of people who don't have any use for us, who don't use the word sin and who don't let it bother them terribly much, um, and who don't particularly want us to hear us talking about Jesus at work. This idea of being a community set apart is important. If we, if I am free to say that even something Jesus said was a buzzkill, this might be it. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, I've come to separate people. I don't see this one on bumper stickers. And I don't hear this one, you know, in, in various other places. This isn't a real popular one. I haven't, I haven't heard anyone speak this. 
maybe ever. It's one of those things where you read the Bible and you, you, you look at the notes and you find, you know, is this, is this a translation problem? Did somebody, is this a modern translation? Did somebody come up with a new way of saying this? Jesus doesn't talk this way. Any atheist will tell you, Jesus never said that. Right? The atheists know exactly who Jesus is. He was a mild-mannered, meek person who went through telling you not to, not to hurt people and not to be greedy. The church is the body of Christ. It is the community set apart. We are the ones called to obey God's rules in the middle of a strange, in the midst of a strange land, in the middle of people who do not care for us and do not want to hear particularly what we have to say. But if we are a light on a hill, when the time comes in certain people's lives, they'll know who to go to. Have any of you had that experience of a person coming to you and saying, you know, what, what is it about you? What do you have? Um... Does church, I, you, I know you go to church, is, is that working for you? Is that making a difference? It's, it seems, you're different from the other people. You don't seem to, to be uh, responding the same way the rest of us do. Have any of you had that? I wish I had it more in my own life, and I believe it's probably because I'm not letting my, sh- my light shine the way I'm supposed to. But I knew who to go to when I was desperate, I knew which of my friends to call. I knew who I had to go to. If, if that person had not let their, shine, their light shine, um, I don't know what I would have done. I didn't know to pray. I didn't know to read the Bible. I would have just muddled through somehow, but I knew to call Sandy. The church and God, he does lead us like a child. We are the sheep of his pasture. This gets us back to the idea, because sometimes in the middle of conversations like this, sometimes in the middle of sermons like this, It seems like a long time has passed before the word love has come up, of care and concern and nurturing, of of his love and and, uh, devotion to us, of his faithfulness to us. We are the sheep of his pasture. He does lead us like children. He does care for us. He leads us through what I've just described, a culture that does not want any part of us. If you've lived as long as I have, you might remember a time when the church was a really respected part of the community in a way that it's not now. Does anybody remember those days? The the church was like that. Um, In Mayberry, everybody went to church. Leave it to Beaver, they went to church. They, you know, I... It was, it was normal to go to church. It was normal for church to be consulted. There was a show, there were shows on TV. There was one called Sunrise Semester. There were other shows like this. There were lots of preachers on TV all week long telling us how we should live and how we should solve moral dilemmas. The church is not consulted for that anymore, and maybe because they don't like the church's answer very much. Because the church is not going to just give um, the okay to whatever it is the world wants to do. But we are the sheep of his pasture. He leads us through this, and he loves us like a bride, the bride of Christ. And remember what, the, what God uh, says about marriage between husband and wife? They're one flesh. Jesus didn't use the term bride and then go, oops, that might be misinterpreted, this whole one flesh thing. Uh, that's not a really perfect word. I could have said something else because this is just going to cause confusion no, he loves us like a, one flesh. We are one with Christ. Make them one as we are one. God's prophecy to the church, just as it was to Israel in Hosea's time, 
We get the word, the word comes, the word is there all the time. Anybody who has, wants to hear the word of God has access to it. Anybody who wants to be in touch with God has access to him. He is always here, he is always present. His word is all around us. In this age with books and with the internet and so on, we can have the word all we want. Even if we didn't, all we have to do is go to the Lord in prayer and a lot of people are just not listening. And sometimes we don't listen. The church must listen. The church is the people of God. The church is the body of Christ. If we don't listen, who's going to listen? God will find, well, I want to answer my own question. God will find somebody. God does not let his plans die because nobody will do anything in order to support them. He'll find the the people, but we want it to be us. He has expectations for us. I think we, as small as we are, we're still, we're still more than the, the church was when it started out. There are more people in this room than the church started with. And look what happened. We can turn this community upside down with what we have, with what we know, with the authority that we're given. He has expectations of his people to listen and to obey, to put him first, and to obey him above what the culture is telling us to do, as tempting as it is, as compelling as it is, to do what the culture says, to keep the culture happy, to do what the culture is uh, requiring of us. He's asking us to do this and not to yield to that. And it is a temptation. The words of prophecy are jarring. Let's try this one in Matthew. All right. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another scripture I don't hear very often. Um, My master has been away a long time. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus uh, walked the earth. My master has been away a long time. When is he coming? Why not now? I see all these signs... People have been calling for Jesus' return, you know, for ages and ages and ages. Not reading the signs right, apparently. But he's been away a long time, and um, because we can't see him, because uh, it seems like we might have a lot more time, it becomes sometimes for us a little less urgent to seek God and stay with him continually and do what he wants all the time. It seems like it leaves us opportunities. I can remember this myself. I still do this myself. Did it yesterday. Um, I'll, I'll do this and then I'll ask for forgiveness. He will forgive me. I know God will forgive me. I'm too weak uh, in my own per- personal case. This might not seem terrible, but it's about my diet. I've agreed to lose 70 pounds. I've lost 15 so far, and so I've talked to myself like, time for a treat. <laughs> 15 pounds is a lot. 
I don't see any reason why I shouldn't. Be. This is a really great time for a reward. Yesterday, I, I ate like food was going to be declared to be illegal any minute. Um, God, it, I was because I promised God I would do this. I'm not being a good steward of what He's given me, uh, and I'm not uh, respecting the body that He's given me. I'm treating it like um, like a, a, a silo, and um, it's it's not it's not a not a good idea. More, more, more. Just make the silo taller. That's the thing about it. See, we we expand, right? Plenty of room. Ah, boy, look at those chips. <laughs> Didn't even have any salsa. Didn't matter. I am, after all, a consumer. We are consumers, and that's our job. <laughs> so, and I told God, I God, you understand. I did. Yes, I'm, you know, aren't we supposed to know better? But just yes. I'll, I'll skip lunch until I, <laughs> until I remember that lunch is out here <laughs> with lots and lots of really good food. And all, you know, so, eh, I'll skip lunch Monday. Um, we, we stray, we come back, we stray, we come back, we do what we want, we indulge ourselves, we please ourselves, we think it's not, it's not significant. I told God I was going to do this. It is significant. When I, tell, when, I, when I stray from this. It doesn't make any difference. If I promised him that I'm not going to eat whorehound cough drops, which is an easy promise to make, if for whatever reason that's the, somebody gave me one and it was the only cough drop I had and I ate it, did I break my promise or not? I, yes. And it matters. When we come to the Lord, we make a promise to give ourselves to him, to live for him, to put him first, that he will be the Lord of our lives and there will be none other, regardless We will stand for him. We will not be ashamed of him so that he is not ashamed of us on the last day. The repentant... uh, (laughs) Nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to joke about that. The repentant can return. Only the repentant can return because only the repentant want to return. That's the nature of it. That's the definition of it. When we are uh, with God and we are right with God and he speaks to us, the way is clear for us to come back. Um, Yes, I I broke my promise to God yesterday, but when I come back, I won't find the door locked. Yes, come back in. And God knows right now. He knows right now, and he's looking at me right now, doing the same thing someday in the future, maybe when I lose 30 pounds. And I think to myself, I am ready for some Chick-fil-A. Two Chick-fil-A sandwiches and the waffle fries. It won't hurt because I'm on a roll. No, it's a breaking of the promise. The repentant can return. He tells us this in Deuteronomy 14.3. And Deuteronomy actually is one of the books that um, you can see some of the, the shadows of it in Hosea. Is it 14.3 or 4.3? I don't want to make this into a quest. 4.3. I pulled the bookmark out to find Matthew. Well, when you, come, when you ask to come back, those who come back, the way is clear is what it amounts to. It takes too long to find it. 
When the Lord speaks to us, when the Lord calls us back, he does not shut the door. The repentant can always return. Those who he calls back, those who belong to him, they always belong to him. They can come back anytime they want if they are contrite. Back to Hosea. Hosea at the end gives words of hope. And this is important because obviously, with, like I say, with, with prophecy, we wrap up with words of hope. That the Lord does not just condemn, the Lord does not just come to frighten us. It's not all warning and it's not all bad news. There's always good news. The good news is God loves us, God cares. There is always a way back. 14, 2, and 3. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all of our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. That we will do for him what we say, that we will, when we make a promise, we will live it out. We will actually carry out the things we promise him we're going to do. Assyria cannot save us, Assyria being politics, political power. We will not mount war horses, which is uh, military power, also economic power. We will never say again, our gods, to that which our own hands have made. Spiritual. In this life, we as Christians, we as the people of God, yield to him and seek him to be our Lord and to, and to uh, uh, tell us who he is and who he wants us to be. The way is always clear. <clears throat> he knows what our weakness is. It, it's encouraging to me what Paul says when Paul acknowledges, what a wretch I am. I can't. I can't do it. I, can, I, I don't care how hard I try. I know there are things I do that I know I'm not supposed to, and the, and the flip-flop of that is exactly the same. I do stuff all the time I know I'm not. I don't, I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. I don't have the willpower. I don't have whatever it takes to do what it takes to be a Christian, but my desire to do right, my desire for you to be my Lord, my continuing coming back to thee and to give myself to you, all of this is, is a pleasing aroma to God. We are always welcome back. He knows we're going to stray, but he wants us not to get used to it. He knows we have to live in this culture, but he doesn't want us to adapt to it. He knows that we are going to be tempted to let the culture dictate to us what it is we want to do and what it is we're supposed to believe and bring it into the church, but we're not going to do it, whatever the cost. Right? Because we know what the cost is. We know what the cost is. We know of all people what the cost is of turning our backs on him. Um, But we also know what it is to be um, in God's care. Let's go to the Lord's in prayer. Lord, in our hearts we recognize the times that we are weak, the times that we take our, um, uh, our own path, the times that we brush you aside so we can go the way that we want to go. We're sorry. As we says in the Psalms, create in us a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Help me, Lord, so to live as that would be pleasing to you. Help me to live, Lord, so that at some point in the future you'll say to us, good, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Make us strong, Lord, to take on the tasks that you give us. Make us strong, Lord, to endure and to withstand and to resist anything ungodly that is made or presented to us as appealing and a suitable alternative to you. Let us know, Lord, there is no alternative to you. And let no alternative to you, Lord, ever look good to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.